You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season hosts Lisa Greenwood, co-host Tim Sorens, and special guests explore spiritual formation. What is formation and what is the church's role in formation? Join our email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my co-host for this season, Tim Sorens. Hey, Tim. Hi, Lisa. So our guest today is Rosalie Harden, and I'm really excited for this conversation. And uh, Tim, you have known and worked with Rosalie Harden for years. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you got connected with Rosalie, and then if you'd give us a, a bit of a bio so we know some more about Rosalie's background. Yeah, I would love to. Well, Great. I met Rosalie uh, well over 10 years ago now. As you'll hear about in a little bit, she helped start this incredible and pretty influential conference called Social Capital Markets, or SOCAP for short. That was, really was like no small thing. The, no big thing. The kind of the impact investing conference in the world, honestly. And um, through a mutual friend, I got invited to help curate some of the content for the meaning track. It was the conference at the intersection of money and meaning, which we'll also get into. So that's how we met. And we have had some incredible adventures in the years since. And I count her one of my dearest friends and closest colleagues. And so this part is fun for me. I get to brag about Rosalie Harden. So Rosalie Harden, as I said, is co-founder of SOCAP, one of the most influential conferences in the world around impact investing. She also, as you'll hear about, is co-founder of Faith and Finance and Neighborhood Economics. She's an Episcopal priest who has preached at the Vatican in front of the Pope. She has traveled all over the world talking about the intersection of faith and finance. She is an incredible businesswoman, priest, mom, grandma, friend. She's the kind of a person that if you get to work with her and scheme with her even for an hour, count yourself lucky. So you are in for a treat with this conversation. I can't wait for you all to meet Rosalie Harden. Yes. She has been, for me, um, someone who is a real connector. She's an encourager and a connector and a networker, and she's always got ideas brewing, and she's wanting to bounce off of your ideas and your creativity. And so she's someone who really helps all boats rise, if you will, in the waters. And so I'm I'm so excited for you all to to hear her. And a couple of things stood out for me. One is, and, and this kind of seems to be a theme throughout our our season on formation is um, in some subtle and not so subtle ways, she's inviting the church to step up its voice, its witness, its bold action. And um, she's inviting leaders to move past fears or or reservations and to be a bold witness for, for the church in the neighborhood and particularly in the area of uh, the intersection of faith and, and our money and, and finances. And, and, uh, and that invitation to be bold, um, again, continues to be a theme, but I so appreciate the way that Rosalie talks about that. Yeah, Lisa, I was actually struck with something that happened that I wasn't exactly expecting. And I would just say for listeners that know, oh, we might be talking about money and formation or the economy, here's what was an interesting twist for me. If you're someone who's like, I don't know about that, or I don't know if I want to talk about money, or that, that instantly brings up shame or confusion or whatever, we definitely get into that. And I think that's really revelatory, that so much of how we want to lean into the economy of God, we would all kind of mentally agree with, but we might have like, you know, like emotional roadblocks to it. And I found the conversations around the need to be vulnerable, the need to do what we can, that she talks about really beautifully, really powerful. So I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Yeah. So let's listen to our conversation with Rosalie Harden. Hi, Rosalie. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Lisa. Hey, Tim. Hi. It is so good to be together. I'm so excited about this conversation. 
So this season, the theme is uh, spiritual formation. And so I want to start this conversation by inviting you to share some key moments in your own spiritual journey, particularly things that have been formative for you as a person and as a follower of Jesus. I know that's big. So just, you know, some key moments. That that is big. (laughs) Right? Right. But the way you ask that question just draws me to childhood, really. And being raised in the Southern Baptist tradition in the 60s in Mississippi, which was, it, it was generous, generative and generous and and a love of Jesus was uh, right at the center of it. And the thing that stands out to me about my formation, and I don't know why this happened, I don't know how this happened, but I cared more about following Jesus than loving Jesus in terms of looking at what Jesus did. And I was always questioning why did Jesus do something and how did how did that impact who we were today? And I, I guess I just love to catch people in paradoxes or something, but I was really, really good at saying, but remember what we heard on Sunday morning, why aren't we doing this? You know, remember what if if this is what we believe. I mean, one of my favorites is pledging allegiance to the American flag at Vacation Bible School. And we were taught at Vacation Bible School the prominence of the American flag. And we had a Christian flag in the sanctuary too. And the American flag was put in the prominent place because we followed the rules of the American treatment of the flag. And I just could not get my head around that. It was like, why why is the Christian flag not in that place? And then we put the American flag in the second place. And that's been, I think that's a a question that came out of my formation to me that I think that question sums up a lot of who I am is just the questioning of if, if Christianity is what we say it is in our lives, then why, then why, why? I think I never left being a three-year-old. Why? Why? Yeah, well, and I'm hearing you talk about the disconnect between what we read in the gospel, what we understand about our why as the human family and beloved children of God and the people of God, our why there, and how when you look around and you say, ah, if that's true, then why are we acting this way? Or why are these social exactly. ills happening? And, and exactly. it, that's true. That's an image for you that I see absolutely in how you live your life. Yeah, it gets me into trouble a lot of the time. But um, <laughs> it, Fair enough. it really is an image. And, and of course, in this last year, two years, with the flag being a waving the flag being a thing it has come up for me over and over and i'm sure that's why it's at top of mind right now is it but that you know what flag do we fly and 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 why aren't we flying the christian the christian flag if you will rosalie as some of our listeners know or certainly will know from the intro you have become an absolutely crucial and key leader at the intersection of faith and finance i'm wondering if you could share how that came to be, where did that passion begin to arise from? And and maybe is it connected to some of the disconnect that you feel? It, oh, it's, it's absolutely connected to, to the disconnect. I, I didn't seek it out. When I was in seminary, <clears throat> I went to seminary as a Southern Baptist and that in the 70s and that didn't, uh, that, that, that didn't go anywhere as you can well imagine. Although I did meet Kevin there, which he will love to have announced on this podcast that he was in seminary, but that's another story. Um, But I met Kevin there and then we went back, moved back to Mississippi. We met at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary that was then in Mill Valley, California. We moved back to Mississippi and over the years in the newspaper business, over the years ended up owning the Mississippi Business Journal. And it was from that place that I realized that I was called to be a priest, but that was the last job I had before I went to seminary to become an Episcopal priest. So that that disconnect of the why and watching people who 95% of the people we wrote stories about in Mississippi would say without doubt they were going to church on Sunday morning, they were Christians. But when you looked at business practices, it didn't really impact them at all. 
Mm. And so I go to seminary, become a parish priest in San Francisco. And meanwhile, Kevin is trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And he landed in this space of uh, social venture or impact philanthropy or impact investing. When he first told me about going to, I, I guess it was social venture partners, I'm not sure, but he first told me about uh, going to one of these events in Silicon Valley with mostly people of means trying to figure out how to do good in a for-profit company. I was like, the church needs to be all over this. I mean, it's like, duh. And Kevin was like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how the church plays into this at all. And so I just... Isn't that watched. interesting? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And being in San Francisco, being on the West Coast, of course, there's this allergy to church. The Silicon Valley has this total allergic reaction. That'll come up in just a minute again, but it's pretty infectious. I mean, you're, on Sunday morning, I used to say to people at Holy Innocence when I would do the uh, the announcements and the welcome, you know, thank you for choosing to be here this morning. In San Francisco, there are a million things to do other than be in church. And the fact that that we had people showing up on Sunday morning uh, that made that a priority in their lives was was a miracle and unique. But anyway, it, he was just like, I don't see how they're connected. And as we talked over the next probably three years, I started seeing this, the lack of the connection, that the, the dots didn't really connect, that people didn't understand the difference in uh in relief work and philanthropy and gift and then just generosity in their lives and a generosity of how we spend our money, you know, much less tithing. I mean, they did, that wasn't even wasn't even on the on the on the radar. So, uh, Kevin and our good friend Tim Freundlich uh, decided to start an event called so Social Capital Markets. Kevin calls it a play on words social capital and capital markets and the heresy that those two things would never meet that and because they were going to run a real business they decided they had to get me to come help them i'll just say it that way so that all of a sudden i get dragged in and kevin and i had done some events businesses before but we started talking about what made this business difference and it was the, the intersection of money and meaning and um so we started in 2008 right after lehman brothers fell we were in the, we were selling tickets for for SoCap, and about six weeks out before SoCap was going to happen, the Lehman Brothers fell, and we thought we we were done that it, the event wouldn't happen, and the opposite happened. Two days later, our ticket sales wow. went through the roof, wow. and we were expecting three hundred people at that event. We were aiming at three hundred people, and we had six hundred in San Francisco in October of 2008. And we called it the intersection of money and meaning. And one of our other co-collaborators, Gary Bowles, said to me, Rosalie, if we're gonna be the intersection of money and meaning, somebody's got to really hang on to the meaning because it's gonna get run over. Oh, money's gonna take over. And for the 10 years that we ran SOCAP, you could see, and Tim, Tim was a part of this. He helped curate, um, Tim Sorens, the Tim we're talking to, uh, yeah. he he helped us curate the meaning track, and every year the money track, you know, turned into a three-lane, four-lane highway, a six-lane highway, and the meaning track just kept being exciting and interesting, but tiny, mm -hmm. and a two-lane country uh, road, two-lane mm -hmm. country road, just kind of trickling its way through, and it kept us, it kept being harder and harder to balance between money and meaning. And, and I think that is because, well, the, the Catherine Fulton, who was with the Monitor Group, was at one of the very first speakers at SoCal in 2008. And she said that impact investing, the sector of impact investing, people investing to change, was in response to a moral hunger in the markets. And that moral hunger is huge. And there, the church is not speaking into that. And I just kept seeing that more and more and more. The longer we ran SOCAP and the longer we were in that conversation, it, it was huge. The other side of it, which is interesting too, is that Tim Freundlich, who at the same time that we started SOCAP, also started a donor advised fund called Impact Assets. And it's now a $2.5 billion 
donor advised fund that he has built over the last decade. And four or five years ago, when we started talking about faith and finance, starting faith and finance, working more deeply and intentionally on the faith side of things, Tim was like, well, yeah, I, everybody knows that, you, you know, you scratch an impact investor and they have a faith story. And it was like, they, they do. I mean, we've been fighting tooth and nail to not talk about faith, but it turns out that the people who are leading the charge, whether they're mm. leading it with, you know, waving a Christian flag, if you will, or whether they are just quietly doing it, something got through to them. Like so many other things in, that are going on in this country, the Christian, the true story of what Jesus is about and what Jesus was have, would have us do is not deeply embedded into our understanding of money. It's often been noted that, except for perhaps the phrase, the kingdom of God, Jesus talked about money more than almost anything else. So, I know this is also a big question, but even as you fast forward to today in our contemporary culture that, as we've been talking about, is always forming us, well, why do we... Why do you think now it's so hard to talk about money from a theological, biblical frame? <laughs> because the people who are supposed to be leading us in talking about money are so dependent on money. Mm. They don't have any freedom from money, freedom from, they, they don't have the freedom to talk about money. I think the number one thing, I mean, I don't have proof of this, but I mean, we know in a, in a traditional church setting that politics and money are going to get a, a pastor fired quicker than anything else. If you start meddling, you're meddling. It's sacrosanct. You just can't talk about it. I mean, and it's not sacrosanct. It's off limits because there's such a dearth of understanding about money that when you bring it up, people are immediately threatened. It's like if you say, how can we share better? The person in the room who has the most is good, you know, just goes, you're coming after my stuff. And so why doesn't generosity, why doesn't a conversation about generosity bring out the, the best in us rather than the worst in us? Right, right. You think about those layers of fear mm -hmm. and scarcity that exist in all of us. So certainly, you know, folks in the pews, but but also, and, and I'm hearing you say this, in the, the pastors and leaders themselves, they feel either perhaps inadequate to address, you know, or, or ill-equipped maybe mm -hmm. is the, the word to say. Um, but also, I mean, we, you know, we have all these statistics about high debt. And so maybe their generosity isn't where they want it to be. So they've got shame. And we know what happens when we have shame. We're, we struggle to speak with our boldest witness always when we're spiraling in shame or fear. And I just, I think you're so right, Rosalie, around what's happening that's making it hard for leaders in the church to lead the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I have conversations with clergy about preaching about money, mm -hmm. and we preach about stewardship, you know, starting in stewardship season, October, you know, the, even the lectionary starts pointing you more specifically toward money. When I challenge people to preach about money around year round uh, or to preach about proper use of money or how we might mm -hmm. think about money, the first thing people say to me is, that how can they do that? They don't understand it. And it's like, well, you preach about the Trinity, you know. And we don't, don't understand, understand that fully. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you have the nerve to get into the pulpit and preach about sin. You know, when they say, I can't preach about money, my finances aren't under control. Well, you know, I, I, I preach about sin and my, you know, I, I, last I checked, I'm full of it. We're you know, all in it, yeah. We're all in it. So we, mm -hmm. we never. What, what do we get in the pulpit and preach about that we really understand or really have have it all figured out? And besides that, nobody wants to hear somebody lecturing them on something they've got all figured out. That's not what people in the pews want. They want to, they want to 
they want a fellow traveler. They want somebody who says, I struggle with this too. And we can struggle together. And how do, yes. we, how do we all get better? Yeah. This is, this is where I think Brueggemann's words are so helpful, where he talked about sort of the, the three players in the, the preaching experience. It's the, the preacher, it's the parishioners, and then it's the text, right? And often we, as preachers, feel like we need to be the one who is speaking to or at <laughs> the people in the pews. And, and Brueggemann wrote about the text, and, and Brueggemann reminds us that we, need, we as preachers need to place ourselves with the people and let the text convict us both, right? So saying that, I'm, I'm curious about what are some of the biblical and theological threads, ideas that have guided you in this work? Well, Walter Brueggemann yeah, has yeah. guided us in this work. Um, right. He's not necessarily uh, cannot, you know, part of the canon, but it's part of he's part of my canon. The text that I think is the hardest to deal with, that is the starting point for us, and it's early in the Acts saga where the fellowship of believers came together and shared what they had and gave to whomever was in need. I, that has been to me, a really important, a really important passage because for me, every time I started thinking about money, I mean, back to what I said about when you start saying we're going to share, the person who has something thinks you're coming after their stuff. So this, that was happening to me. Every time I would read that passage, it was like, what am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to give up? And through reading Wendell Berry, one day I had this insight about that passage was that it wasn't that the disciples came together and said, okay, now everybody put everything you got in the middle of the room and then we're going to share as to, with whoever has need. To me, that passage is a statement of a fact that we do share Wendell Berry, when he talks about who is your neighbor, and we live on a river, and we know this, that the people who live upstream from us determine the quality of the water in our river, and we determine the quality of the water in the river of the people downstream. So we are in it together. We, the people who live on that river didn't come together and say, now we're going to share this water with the people who have need. It's a question of, are we all going to take care of the river, or are we not? Any one of us can mess this up. And that when the disciples did that, they were just acknowledging everything on this earth is all of ours. How do we take these resources so all of the resources that we have serve all of us? And the, the question is, if it's not serving the people in need, then it's not serving all of us. And it's just a, a fact. If, if you're dumping oil in the river, you're not serving people in need because people downstream need that that river and need that water. And it, they weren't doing anything revolutionary. They were just acknowledging the truth. And that's what we are, are not doing as the top 2% or the top 10% of the people on this planet are not realizing that we're not serving the people in need. This feels like an, a really important segue, if you will, into the work that you're doing now with na Neighborhood Economic. Can you talk a little bit about that and the genesis of it and, and, and your why around it and your hopes? And Well, it's really lucky that your co-host is Tim Sorens, Lisa, because Tim um, is right. <laughs> a huge piece of, of Neighborhood Economics and has been, uh, in fact, the very first neighborhood economics in 2014 was Tim's idea. Uh, and it, it was a, a ploy to get Walter Brueggemann in the room with us. And it worked. <laughs> and um, it's true. That we were successful. It was, we were successful. But t as I mentioned earlier, Tim has been, had been helping with the meaning side of SOCAP. And we really didn't want to go deeper into the meaning side. And we felt like, a convening like neighborhood economics would be a way to bring all the players um, of 
in a in a less I don't know less threatening way, but that's not exactly right. In a more approachable way, into and the say range. what you mean by all the players. Like yeah. give examples. Yeah. So SoCap was impact investors, and it was really about the impact investors, the people with money, and ha- trying to help them figure out how to invest in things that would would do good. And we also had entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs there who were trying to build businesses. So there was always mm-hmm. the, how do you build a business that does good? But at Neighborhood Economics, it wasn't just investors and entrepreneurs, but it was also mayors and pastors and civic uh, philanthropists and anybody who was trying to figure out how to build a system back to the river that served everybody. And so what we were trying to do was to build a gathering space that helped people come together and see that the river was everybody's. And it's been a, a very interesting journey to look back over the almost decade that we've done it. We've, we've had, a few events, and then we we got deeper into faith and finance, which is a, an arm of what we do that is just aimed at trying to help people of faith answer some of the questions that we're talking about. But it's, faith and finance is a big thread in, the, in neighborhood economics. Mm-hmm. And at neighborhood economics, we really want to, to bring everybody to the table in a way that changes not just what an individual might do with his or her money, like impact investing does, but bring people to the table to talk about how to change the system, how to really build a new economy, how to get money to flow to people that it doesn't normally go to. Yeah, Rosalie, wouldn't you say that as we were working together at SOCAP all those years ago, SOCAP excelled at being the big global tent to have the conversation about impact investing and social entrepreneurship. And it really was global. I mean, dozens and dozens of countries represented. But with with my task of trying to help curate and cultivate the meaning track, because of my frame, and some of the listeners will know kind of my lens of place and faith, I couldn't figure out how to do that well without going much more local and like having place be a central frame and then it was it was kind of interesting because I was like a pastor at the time. Rosalie was an Episcopal priest, but it was also San Francisco it was already begun, and it was tricky to figure out within a big public setting how do you talk about faith well in a pluralist way, of course, multi faith. But increasingly, we were like, how do we talk about meaning if we feel like we can't quite talk about faith? And so, part of neighbor economics was also. Yes, we want to change the system. And if we're going to do that, we have to get a lot closer to the ground and we have to open space at the kind of widest level possible to talk about faith. And so at that first event that we did in Louisville, Kentucky, where we got both Walter Brueggemann and Peter Block, which was amazing. Wow. It was so fascinating and it still is so incredible when you have kind of world-changing social entrepreneurs, impact investors, a lot of ambition, a lot of drive, a lot of potential. And those kinds of people with faith, they're not usually in the same room. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen is a lot of the people, you could say not from a particular faith tradition, or at least they weren't really public about it, felt like, whoa, like, first of all, who is this Walter Brueggemann guy? This is amazing. But also, I think it invited, like, yeah, what is the story that gives me meaning and how do I own that in a more public way? And for the church folks, the, the, the faith-based folks, I felt like it was an invitation to say, we steward, I mean, speaking as a Christian, we steward this incredible story. Like we actually believe that God is renewing and restoring everything. So of course we need to reimagine the economy because living where we do right now, that is arguably the central driver of our culture is how we imagine the economy. So trying to figure out how do we create spaces to have these conversations was the, you could say the genesis of neighbor economics. And I'll pitch it back to you, Rosalie, because it actually has grown, I'd say to be more practical. Like I, the question I think we're asking right now is in a very simple way, how do we move capital 
to the folks who don't usually get it. Maybe you want to say a little bit more about that right now, Rosalie. I'll say more about that. And I want to do it within a continuum of where we were in 2014. I mean, the very first neighborhood economics we hosted, because it, it was a small event and we didn't have a lot of money for a facility. You know, we were testing this thing. We hosted it at the Episcopal Cathedral in Louisville. So we had invited SOCAP people. And if you remember what I said earlier, who were pretty secular, we had invited SOCAP folks to show up in a at an event that was going to be held in a church. And church, Tim yeah. and Kevin and I, I can remember the day before or that morning, and, and we and the attendees were about half church people and about <laughs> half SOCAP people. And we were like, uh, what have we done? I'm not sure. We were we're freaking out. We were freaking (laughs) out. It was like, okay. (laughs) And and we didn't have many tools. um, So Tim had done this great thing of inviting a half dozen entrepreneurs who were working in the space that, that had created a tool that would build more community or make a connection. And so we were going back and forth between people like Michelle Long talking about Valley and the local economy and Walter Brueggemann and then local uh, entrepreneurs who were Christians and going back and forth between those two things. And when it was over, we had a new list of things you could do. Um, Mm. Kiva Local had just uh, launched where you could do a Kiva loan in the United States. Mm. And I can't remember what the tools were, but we had a list, but it was a very, very short list. Mm. And what's happened over the last decade of of tracking this and, and Kevin, my husband, Kevin Jones, work in building tools and finding tools, not, not just building tools, but we've assembled quite a number of tools that people and particularly people of faith churches can engage to really make an economic change in their neighborhood. Ten, ten years ago, the idea might have been for you to take some money from your church and start a fund for local entrepreneurs. And you would do it by inviting the banker or the CPA from your congregation to help mentor minority entrepreneurs. Sounds great. Really bad idea. Really bad idea. Uh, Because one of the things that we have really dug into is that the tool that the traditional bank way of doing things, the traditional accounting way of doing things, folks on the ground, folks in the trenches, folks who are in need know a whole lot more about how to manage money effectively than we do. We know how to manage in their context and with their people and with, yeah, Mm -hmm. interesting. And so we have learned how to, to develop loan funds that loan appropriately. We have learned how to find uh, minority people who, who know how to create tools and to talk the language of the people who need the money rather than talk down to the people who need the money rather than talk across the people that need the money, but to, to, to have culture, our friend Derek Brazil, uh, culturally appropriate technology, he calls it, for teaching and working with minority entrepreneurs, how to use a saving circle that used to be used just to buy a sewing machine to buy a house, you know, how to use a saving circle to create big businesses. We are just really excited about the way the economy is changing at that level. And I think the the biggest excitement to me about neighborhood economics is being able to open the eyes of people in the pews to get rid of that idea that when we're talking about being more generous, that you're coming after my stuff, but to say your stuff can participate in this new economy. Your stuff can be generative in a way that you actually don't lose anything, but everybody gains. I mean, a a simple thing that has existed for a long time, but if, if you this is a great analogy is that when you have a choice of where let's say you've got a hundred thousand dollars in your, in your savings account for your rainy day fund. And let's, let's hope some people do because you know that 
the what the way things are going we need to have a way to take care of ourselves but what do you do with that savings account mm -hmm. let's not say that it's wrong to have it that's an that's another question but if you do have it where do you have where do you have it where's right. that money spending the night is it in a traditional bank or is it in a hedge fund that's invested in diamond mines or is it at self-help credit union which is a credit union we can't get a loan from that credit union we we make too much money to get a loan from that credit union but that credit union is loaning is building houses in Asheville it is starting businesses in Asheville it is doing or Texas Methodist Foundation where we're or, turning around and investing back into the church and into the church's work yes right yes exactly places your money can be that just yeah that just that one little thing makes a huge difference. And then there's, from that on, there are all of these other ways that you can, in, you can invest and for return, you can invest for no return. You can just invest in humans, mm -hmm. not care whether you get anything back out of it. Imagine that, that you would uh, want to, to, to do that kind of investing. But we, I mean, and churches, the thing about a neighborhood changing is it needs an anchor institution. It needs institutions at the center of that conversation that can provide the stability for change to happen around it. And a church is a great place to be that anchor institution that can wave that flag, if you will, yeah. and say, yeah. we're going to participate in the economy in a different kind of way. And it doesn't necessarily cost you a penny to do that. You well, may and decide what, after you do it that it, you want to start spending in a different way, but it doesn't cost you anything to do it. On on the front end, right? If you're if you're talking about how you invest your dollars, and and then that can lead to, as you say, other questions about how you're investing, how you're spending, how you are participating in the river of your neighborhood, if you will. Yeah. And so I, I feel like this gets us kind of full circle, if you will, because at the beginning, maybe in a less pointed way, but I'm going to put it uh, perhaps to say that you were talking about the disconnect in what we say we believe in the gospel and then how we behave. And then it's almost as if the, the church, I, I would say inadvertently and with all best intentions has drifted from what it means to be the church in the neighborhood. And I'm mm -hmm. hearing you calling the church to pay attention to how it utilizes its, uh, understands and utilizes all its assets from its building and its property and its money, its people, its, you know, its gospel witness, you know, all, all of its assets. And are we, are we utilizing those and leveraging those in ways that help all who live along the river to drink from the waters and to, to flourish in life? And, so going back to that, I'm, I'm wondering if you can pull on those threads a little bit and say, what does that have to do with the church's role in forming people and communities and in discipleship and formation? Can you connect some of those dots? Maybe another way to put that is, you know, what's your hope for Christians today, maybe even the church, related to how to our relationship with money? how we shop, how we budget, how we spend, how we save in relationship to our everyday lives. What would you hope would be true? It took me a while to get to this place. And I think that's interesting because when you were talking about Brueggemann and the three-legged stool of preaching, that I was guilty of the same thing that I was telling you that other preachers say to me, that I kept thinking I had to have it all figured out. And mm -hmm. even in even in the first five, six years of, of SOCAP, I kept asking that question, which I think was a formative question for me was, if I'm not perfect, then I can't say anything. You know, if I'm not perfect, I can't say anything. In fact, my grandmother told me that one time when I, and I can remember her say, telling me mm -hmm. that if you're not, you know, you're not perfect. So why do you get to say anything? And, but I think it's a question that a lot of us ask as Christians is that if we don't have it figured out, how can we do this? And so for a long time, I just bemoaned the fact that my closet was full of clothes that I had no idea where they came from. And I had this idea that someday my closet would be full of clothes 
that I knew the origin of them. I knew who had made them. I knew that every penny in the uh, the chain of was was spent in righteous ways. And, and then your hands would be clean and yes, <laughs> you could speak from hands, this high holy place. <laughs> this high holy yeah. place. Ouch. And who the hell would want to follow me? As you know, yeah. over, you know, <laughs> Ouch. Um, and I think that actually happened by spending some time with somebody who really does have that kind of attitude about their lives. Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, that they were just so careful about, you know, not shopping on Amazon. And I, and I was actually pretty good about not shopping with Amazon, which I really do think is, it is a sin. Um, but until COVID and then, you yeah. know, okay, well that fell apart mm-hmm. and that we have to live in this world. Mm-hmm. But if, until we as leaders in the church can drop what I was dealing with and what I still deal with of saying, I can't speak until I have it all figured out. We've got to say, no, we're going to speak into this anyway. Um, I, I probably have used this illustration way too many times. And some people, anybody who knows me that's listening to this podcast will have heard it. But a good friend of mine who's now Bishop, Episcopal Bishop of East Tennessee, Brian Cole, at the cathedral where I was canon for money and meaning in Asheville. Um, for, and we were both there serving at the same time. And our friend Lewis had a, a, an independent bookstore that was struggling, as independent bookstores do. And Brian had this conversation with me about, I want to encourage people to shop with at Lewis's bookstore, but can I do that? I mean, of course you should be able to do that. I mean, that's one of the, the main things that it just kind of gets me is that where did the church get the attitude that we can't support our members financially by shopping at their stores? So anyway, Brian sent an email out, not to the church email list, if I've got the story, if I remember it right, but to his friends, just saying, mm-hmm. you know, Lewis is going to retire in a couple of years and, you know, because of the way bookstores are going, if we could just shop from at Lewis's bookstore, then buy one book this Christmas, just buy one book this Christmas. And a whole bunch of people bought one book or two books or five books. Mm -hmm. And Lewis had a great Christmas. It made his year and he retired from that bookstore a couple of years later. And, I mean, that's a silly story in some ways, but it's like, if I can just buy one, if I can just remember every week to buy something locally, if I can just remember every week to, to shop at a minority, at, at a Black-owned business, mm-hmm. if I can just know where the Black-owned businesses are, if I can just find out what are the resources, where are the places I can spend my money in my community that will make a difference. I don't have to stop buying anything else anywhere else but if i can just start attending to a few things where is my money spending the night where is my money where am i spending my money and if i can just think every time i order something from amazon for just a second and say can i get this locally and how hard would it be yeah and 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 weigh the cost of it it's going to be more expensive, but if, if it's $2 more expensive and I'm going to be downtown anyway, can't I make yeah. that decision to do that? Yeah. That we have, have taken completely off the table, that convenience and consumerism is running the engine of how we live in this world as economic beings. And we've got to start questioning that just at, and start with what you, you know, I went to a, years ago to a retreat with the Jesuits on prayer. And when I walked into the door for a 10 day silent retreat with the Jesuits, there was a sign over the door that says, pray as you can, not as you can't. And I think the the big piece we've got to get across to people, to preachers, to people doing formation, and then as preachers and people doing formation, we've got to get across to the people in pews. Do what you can, not what you can't. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't get every dress in your closet, having a great origin story, 
you can get two dresses. You can get one purse. You can just start discovering local artists. You can figure out where you can invest your money with a return that the money will do good. Where's your money spending the night? And start asking what you can do, not what you can do. Yeah. And it, it really harkens back to the scripture of where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so really paying attention to where our treasure is. Where is it? And what is it doing? And what is it speaking about our lives? And and I I so appreciate this invitation to not be consumed with shame about all the ways we're not getting it right, but to actually say, what is something I can change that leans more toward my deep commitment to the gospel? And 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 pick a thing and then the next thing. I mean, just take the next faithful step. It doesn't have to be we've We've cleaned the whole of it today, but move toward that. And that's that's such a helpful invitation, Rosalie. I love how, how you're beginning to narrate what's possible is actually an invitation. It might be a struggle at first, but I felt myself feeling like as you were talking about both the wardrobe and then the small practices and the bookstore, this is a better way to live, actually. this For me, I feel like this is a connection to the invitation of Jesus. And so if we ask, yeah, what is the economy for from a perspective of scripture? It's, I would say, to, to borrow that phrase from our our, our collective dear friend, Diamond Harges, it's about public joy. I mean, it actually, yeah. there's a better right. story here that we right. get to live mm-hmm. into. And yeah, it takes discipline and it's not always intuitive, but just like any discipline, with a little bit of repetition, some help along the way, a guiding framing story, it actually is a more free, more healthy, more yeah. abundant way to live. And I feel like that's what you're inviting us all into, which is a deep part of the formation that we're all called to. Yeah, I had a professor in seminary. I've been really formed by the Jesuits, as you will hear in this, but a Jesuit prof- um, professor who talked about original sin and um, I was taking a class in Christology from him, way out of my league. But uh, it was the the big take home for me was Don Jelpy talking about he was he probably be ninety now. He was born in New Orleans in the thirties, maybe, and said he couldn't help but be a racist. He was because he was born into a racist culture, and he was raised in a racist culture. And that he's had to really peel back the layers of that and and get to what's underneath it and to start healing that bit by bit. And that he believed that's what original sin was. And I think that that's our job in formation around the economy is that we're born into this consumeristic mm. economy. We are born into this understanding of the people with money get to make the decisions. We are born into all of the the things that that we're struggling with about trying to change how we serve everybody on this planet, not just the people at the top. And and we we are taught that the economy is beyond our our ability to to change. That it is not changeable. It is what it is. When the economy is a construct that needs to be examined and then we need to peel it back one little piece at a time and we need to start noticing that how we behave in that economy is impacting us. That Don Jelpy didn't say, well, I was born into a racist society, so I'm going to be a racist. So um, it's, I see, say the same thing for us, that we're born into a consumeristic society, so I'm going to be a consumerist, or I'm born into this economy that preferences the rich, so I'm going to work to be rich. You know, what we're born into has to be examined, and that's what Jesus calls us to do. I want to use different language, that it's a, it's a restorative thing to do to examine it. It is not... It's who, it's who we are meant to be as followers of Christ. Yes, is to, to be the to, alternative narrative, right? To be the alternative to, narrative. To examine what we're born into. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So this conversation has been so rich, Rosalie. I, I'm. We knew it would be fun to be with you. I'm so grateful you said yes. Before we end, we're asking all of our guests this final question. 
What is one way that you are being formed right now and what difference is it making for you? And let me be fair to say, we understand that we're being formed every day, all the time. So you can pick anything in the whole gamut of the universe that is forming you right now and what difference it's making. Uh, My mother was a librarian and my father was a newspaper editor. So reading and writing were big deal in our family. And sometime, I think it may have happened before the pandemic, but it, but during the pandemic, I stopped reading. And I don't, I think that there's some, I think there's, when you read fiction, particularly, you don't know how it's going to end. And I, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I'm kind of tearing up saying this. I started being aware that I didn't want to read because I, I wouldn't watch anything but romantic comedies. And I would skip over the tense parts, you know, where, you know, mm-hmm. something happens. And they're, they're separated for a minute. You know, they're going to get back together. So I just fast forward over that part. And I think that during the pandemic, that my my reading uh, it, it went away. I, I didn't read anything on the printed page, and I read something or listened to a podcast recently about reading, and I had noticed this already, and it was bugging me. And I made a decision to to start reading again. And when I was at an event with FTE a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Octavia Butler's name came up over and over. And I had had the Parable of the Sower on the top of my dresser for a year because it was a book I wanted to read. And talk about the right and the wrong book to read. It's a dystopian futurism. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it, it was just, it's just crazy. But I've started reading again. And I'm just mm-hmm. opening myself, intentionally opening myself up to possibility not just positivity, but, um, and oddly enough, that book talks about that in her, uh, the way she talks about God is change. Mm -hmm. And I just finished it last night and that, but that my commitment right now to my own formation is to read Mm -hmm. and to read more, uh, to really get back into that practice of reading, maybe even reading the Bible, you know? That might be a thing to do. <laughs> Maybe even. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's where I'm looking for, for formation in my life yeah. and where I'm seeing it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your vulnerability in that and, and your witness. Um, thank you. And thank you mm-hmm. for the work that you do, Rosalie. You make such a difference in the church and the church's witness and in the lives of leaders who are, are really trying to be faithful in this season. So thank you. Thank you. The great thing about what I do is that I get to spend time with people like Lisa Greenwood and Tim Soren. So that makes that makes my work a lot easier. And thank you both for the invitation and for all the other ways you engage with us. Thank you, Rosalie. You're a gift. Thank you, Rosalie. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.